With your Bible open to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 58. 1 Corinthians 15, 58. We want to talk tonight about a strange subject. How to keep at it when others quit. How to keep at it when others quit. And all around us, people quit. How are you going to deal with that? 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I want to start with verse 51. Paul always couches his great conclusions upon some tremendous bases. He doesn't just suddenly spring some statement on us, but he leads up to it gradually. And one of the greatest statements in the entire Bible is 1 Corinthians 15, 58. But notice it begins with a therefore. And every time you see the word therefore, you need to ask, what is the therefore therefore? And the Holy Spirit, writing through Paul, has given us a background for this therefore. He says, beginning in 50, 51, Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trump. For the trumpet shall sound, and the dead shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption, and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now there's a period there, and then there's a word called therefore. Now that therefore goes back for its basis to what has already been said. On the basis of the fact that we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. There's going to be a resurrection. There's going to be a new body. This mortal must put on immortality. This corruptible shall have put on incorruption. Death shall be swallowed up in victory. Then, Paul says, therefore, therefore, my dearly beloved, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord for as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. That's a remarkable statement, and I hope you'll mark it in your Bible. On the basis of the fact that one day we're going to have a new body, free from all the anxieties, free from all the fears, free from all of the afflictions, free from all of the depressions, free from all the things that subject us to defeat. Paul says, on the basis of that, I beseech you, brethren, that ye be steadfast. Now, steadfast means that you've got a course. You know the course you're going on, and you're going to continue that course. Unmovable. That means that all the hosts of hell can blow their winds against you and you'll be unmovable. Always abounding. Now, you, the word abounding reminds me of a kangaroo. You ever see a kangaroo? The kangaroo doesn't just walk. 
It abounds, it bounds, you know, it goes like that. And it always seems to be enthusiastic. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, in the work that honors Christ. For as much as ye know that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Sometimes I feel discouraged and think my work's in vain. And then the Holy Spirit revives my heart again. Sometimes we can give the best of our service only to be misunderstood. Sometimes all the winds of affliction blow against us and we feel like throwing in the towel. But the Holy Spirit says, Therefore, on the basis of the fact that you have a hope within you, Christ in you, the hope of glory, you have the hope in you that one day you're going to exchange this vile body for a glorious body fashioned like unto Christ's body. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast. Get on a course of action. Get on a course of service. Find out what God wants you to do with the talents and time and life and get at it and be unmovable, always abounding, enthusiastically in the work of the Lord. Well, what do you do with the problems and the trials and all those heartaches that come? I want us to think about that for a few moments tonight. And as we think together about how to keep at it when others quit, we need to think of two of the saddest verses in the Bible. One of them is found in Acts 13, 13. If you'll look in your Bible at that place, you'll find a young man, one of the most promising of all the young men in the Bible, and because we have read the last chapter of the Bible, we know how everything turned out, and we know that he was an outstanding person. But we read a discouraging word about this man in Acts 13, 13. Paul and Barnabas had left Antioch and gone on the missionary journey. And Barnabas had a nephew named John, John Mark. And Barnabas wanted John Mark to go with them. And Paul thought that was a good idea. And so together, Paul and Barnabas and John Mark set out on that first missionary journey. They went down to Cyprus. They crossed the Mediterranean Sea and came to Paphos. And then the Bible says in Acts 13, 13, Now when Paul and his com company loosed from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. Now we may not get the full significance there because we may say, well, maybe John just uh, had a special mission to do. Maybe he had something important to do back in Jerusalem. And uh, let's not be too hard on him until we find Paul and Barnabas a little bit later having such a disagreement over John Mark that Paul and Barnabas are divided asunder. And Barnabas takes Mark and goes down to Cyprus and Paul takes Silas and goes on the second missionary journey, knowing therefore that something happened to John Mark. We do not know why John Mark quit. We just know he quit. Some have conjectured that he got homesick. 
He was a young man. Maybe he was 16, 17, 18 years old. It's possible he got homesick. Others have thought that he got a little bit jealous. When they first started on a missionary journey, it was Barnabas and Paul. Barnabas was very dear to John Mark. And all along you read about Barnabas and Paul. And then all of a sudden, you begin to read about Paul and Barnabas. And some have read in between the lines and think they have seen a mark of jealousy in John's life that he didn't like it because the leadership was taken over by Paul instead of Barnabas. We do not know that. We simply know that John Mark quit. He went back to Jerusalem. After the first missionary journey was over and after the Jerusalem conference and after the contention between Paul and Barnabas became so sharp that they divided asunder, Barnabas took Mark and went down to Cyprus. We never read one more word about Barnabas in the Bible. Not anything. We've already read that he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit. Much people were added to the Lord. We've already read that he was wealthy and he sold his farms and laid the money at the apostles' feet. We know a whole lot about Barnabas, but after this experience, we don't read anything else about Barnabas. He goes down to Cyprus, and you know what I think? I think he literally poured his life into John Mark. I think he loved him. He wept over him. He prayed for him. He said, now, Mark, let's do this. Mark, let's do this. Mark, let's do this. And the question has always been right, raised, was Barnabas right or was Paul right? I think both of them were right. Mar- Paul said, I'm not going to take a quitter. On this second missionary journey, I'm not going to take it. He's too in- in- insecure, too inexperienced. He's had these problems. He quit on us. I'm not going to take him. Well, to know you could get scandalously mad at Paul and say, what kind of a critter is he? But you need to know what Paul accomplished with his life before you dare bring a railing accusation against him. He had the work of the Lord on his heart. He said, it is not right for us to take this quitter with us. But the Holy Spirit whispered in Barnabas's heart, you take Mark and you help him and you train him and you work with him until one day he will be profitable for the ministry. And years and years and years and years go by. We never learn about Barnabas anymore. Paul is in a Roman prison. It's in the same passage in 2 Timothy chapter 4, and if you'll turn there, please, 2 Timothy chapter 4, the same passage where we read, I think, 10 of the saddest words in the entire Bible. Paul says, in this wonderful closing chapter of his life. He says, I want you to bring, verse 11, take Mark and bring him with thee, for he is profitable to me for the ministry. You imagine Paul, that sharpshooter for God, that man who wouldn't put up with any kind of indecision or any kind of problems in somebody's life. Paul says, near the end of his life, he says, I want you to bring Mark. He is profitable to me for the ministry. Why? Because Barnabas had poured his life into Mark. And now Mark is ready to go for God. And old Paul, about to pass off the scene, says, bring Mark on. He's going to be okay. He's going to be okay. So I want to tell you, it is possible to quit 
and make a comeback. It is possible to make a mistake and still accomplish something. The other example I want to offer you is in verse 10. Several places in the epistles, there's a man named D-E-M-A-S, Demas, mentioned. He is an associate of the apostle Paul. He is somebody very, very special to Paul. Paul trusted him and loved him. He was somebody that Paul could leave at certain places and know that the work would get done. Demas was an unusually enthusiastic person. He was a man filled with all kinds of promise, and I believe he knew the Word of God or Paul would not have had him with him in such close responsibilities and relationships. But there came a day when, writing from that Roman prison, Paul had to write to Timothy, and he said, Now, Timothy, I'm, I'm almost by myself. Luke is here, the beloved physician. But listen, Timothy, Demas, remember Demas? My close friend. I trusted him with everything. I trusted him with the work. He was dear to me. I believed in him. Timothy, Demas hath forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed unto Thessalonica. How sad. How sad. Now we have Mark, a quitter. Demas, a quitter. We heard a message in the, in the uh, training union hour tonight, just a little bit of Dr. Jerry Vine's message on the Baptist and his Bible. And among the things that he mentioned had to do with the inspiration of the Scripture and how every word is true and all the Word of God is precious and every line and every precept and every syllable and every jot and every tittle, everything in the Word of God is God-breathed. And I believe that God breathed in such a way that we have an insight into Mark's life knowing that after he quit, he made a comeback and he got going for God again. Concerning Demas, we have no record like that at all. The record of the Word of God ends, as far as Demas is concerned, with 2 Timothy 4.10. Demas hath forsaken me. Now I want to know tonight, what are you going to do? How are you going to keep on when others quit? Quitting is one of the real experiences of life. We see it happen in homes. A husband and wife will get together, a man and woman will decide they love each other, and they get together, and they have their wedding vows, and they stand at the marriage altar, and they say, God will take care of us, and I thee wed until God by death shall separate us, for better or for worse, for richer or for poorer, for sickness, in sickness and in health, until God by death shall separate us. And then down the line, things don't go so well. And there are problems. And somebody walks out on the marriage. They just quit. They don't want anything to do with it anymore. Thank God that some of those who quit in marriage recognize before it's too late and they make a comeback. 
One of the greatest blights in the Christian life is for two people who love each other and love God and love His work and love His church to decide they're going to just separate and divorce. They're going to stay away from each other all the rest of their lives. How sad. I think angels in heaven weep over that. But how precious when though there have been mistakes made and uh, poor judgment and somehow we got our eyes off of Jesus but we come to grips with that and we make a comeback and that home is restored. How good. How precious. We see it in associations. People who respect each other and love each other work together and then all of a sudden they divide. They can't take it any longer. We see it in Christians. They'll work and serve for a while. And they'll say, I'm going to do what God wants me to do with my life. And they seem to put it on the line for the Lord. Some are elected to the diaconate. Some are elected to be Sunday school teachers. Some are elected to be ushers. Some are elected to be special uh, people in certain committees. Some are elected to do the work of Jesus in unusual ways. Some are, some are called as pastors. Some, are, some surrender their lives to be missionaries or to be preachers. And they'll go at it for a while. They'll do it for a while. And then they turn and quit. One of the most disappointing things in my memory is a very fine young man who one day walked down the aisle of this church and offered his, Lord, his life to the Lord. God's, he said, I want God to use me. And he began to walk with the Lord and serve the Lord. And for outward appearances, it seemed there was a deep sincerity. One day he came to me. He said, uh, I want to marry a certain girl. I want you to marry us. He'd only gone with her about three weeks. I said, well, I, I, I'll pray about it, and let me, let's talk about it. Well, he said, I don't want to talk about it. He said, I'm going to marry her. And I prayed earnestly for leadership. Now, I want to tell you something. A pastor is not a marrying Sam. He's not a justice of the peace that marries everybody that comes along. And there has to be some discernment. And I said to that young man who had offered his life to God to serve, I think, I said, you need to wait a year. I had already counseled with the girl he wanted to marry. I said, you need to wait a year. I said, I'm not going to wait a year. I'm going to get married. So he moved his membership. Got another preacher to marry him. They lived together for a while. And heartbreak of all heartbreaks, they divorced. He quit preaching. He just quit on God. Last I saw him, had a beard and long hair. Didn't believe in God at all. Now, I don't know whether he was ever saved or not. I don't believe you can be saved and lost. But I know you can mess your life up in such a way that you get away from God 
and you have no fellowship with God. Now what are you going to do when others do that? What are you going to do when others quit? Here's a person that says, I will serve in the Sunday school. I'll take my place of leadership. I'll do a work for God. And then they get their eyes off of Jesus, and they get it onto some person. And they say, well, that's an antipathy to me. I don't like that person. I don't like the way they do. I don't like what they say. I don't like the way they part their hair. I don't like this. I don't like that. I'm going to quit. What do you do when somebody quits? Well, thank God there's some people in the Bible that didn't quit. I think of Hannah. Hannah, godly, godly lady. She came to the temple every year to pray for a son. On this particular year, she was down there at the altar, and I don't know exactly how it was arranged, but she was there, and Eli the priest saw her. And she was down there, her mouth was moving, and she was praying earnestly from her heart for a son. <clears throat> and old Eli misunderstood. He thought she was drunk. And he said to her, what are you doing, drunken woman? She said, I'm not drunk. I'm pouring my soul out to God. I'm asking God to give me a little boy. Now, she could have gotten mad at the priest. She could have gotten mad at Mr. Eli, Brother Eli, for, for thinking that. And Brother Eli should not have thought that. If he thought it, he ought to have prayed about it before he said it. But sometimes we say things hastily. And he said that hastily. But Hannah didn't quit. He didn't, she didn't say, well, I'm never going to come back to church again. That man accused me of being drunk. He didn't say anything. She didn't say anything like that. Her soul, her soul was ablaze with a desire for a boy that she could give to God. And when Eli understood it, God spoke to Eli's heart and said, you tell her that she'll have a son. And the next year, the little boy was born. And you know what Hannah did? She said, boy, this is my boy. Nobody's going to tell me what to do with my boy. I'm going to just do anything I want to. I'll tell you, little Sammy, you can uh, live and do whatever you want to do. I'll make you go to school. But when it comes to time to go to church, you can wait till you're 20 to decide whether you want to go to church or not. Do you suppose Hannah said that to that little boy? Not on your life. Any of our people who work in the bus ministry or work in the Sunday school have had encounters with moms and dads who have said, well, I'm not going to make my son or daughter go to church. Uh, I'm not going to make them go. Uh, they can decide whether, when they're old enough whether they want to go to church or not. Hannah didn't say that. Hannah said, my soul doth magnify the Lord. And when at a certain time when it was old, when it was time enough and the little boy was old enough, Hannah came to the temple and she said, God has been so good to me. I want to give this little boy to God. And she took hands off of that little fellow's life. The most precious thing in her whole life was that little boy. She had prayed for him all of her life. She said, I want to give him to God. I want to give him to God. Hannah didn't quit. I'm so thankful for Hannah. I like to go back and read about her over and over and how she gave her little boy to God. 
Listen, moms and dads, the greatest thing on earth you can do is to give your little boy or girl to Jesus. Bring that little boy or girl to God. Let God have him. That doesn't guarantee that they'll never go wrong, but it certainly says something about you. It says something about you offering your child to the Lord God. I think of Samuel himself. He had a lot of problems in life, but Samuel didn't quit. Samuel just went right on serving God. When he was seven years old, I think he was about seven, he was in the temple trying to sleep, and he kept hearing his voice, Samuel, Samuel, Samuel. And he got up and he ran to Eli and he said, Sir, did you call me? No, I didn't call you. Go back to sleep. Samuel, Samuel. He got up and ran to Eli again. Sir, I heard you call me. What, what, what is it? He said, I didn't say anything to you, but I perceive that God is talking to you. You go back to bed, and if you hear it again, you just say, Lord, speak for your servant heareth. Samuel, Samuel. Samuel got from his bed, and he got before God a little boy. You think God doesn't speak to little boys and girls? I know he does. And Samuel said, Lord, what is it? And God unloaded on Samuel a little boy, one of the hardest things he ever had to do. He was to tell Eli that Eli had messed his life up and that Eli would pass off the scene and not be used. Now Samuel could have quit. He said, that's too big a job for me. But he didn't quit. He kept at it. He kept at it. And 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 he became the prophet and the priest. And there came a day when the people of Israel said, Samuel, we've looked around and we want a king like all the other nations have a king. We want a king. We want a king. We want a king. Samuel said, it isn't God's will for you to have a king. He had the, he had the backbone to stand up to him. We want a king anyway. We want a king anyway. We want to be like the Edomites and the Moabites and all these others. And Samuel went before God, and God said, Samuel, they have not rejected you, they've rejected me. And you get up and give them a king. And Samuel, an older man, went over and anointed Saul of Kish, Kish's son to be the king. And then he called the people together, and he said, Now, it isn't God's will for you to have a king, but this is God's second best for you. But God forbid that I should sin against the Lord in ceasing to pray for you. Samuel didn't quit. He didn't quit. Met obstacles, opposition, problems all along the way, but he did not quit. He did not quit. Others quit around him. He didn't quit. What do you do when others quit? How do you keep going? I think tonight of one of the greatest men in the entire Bible, Nehemiah. Open your Bible to Nehemiah for a moment. Nehemiah. And if you look at chapter 4, Nehemiah came to Jerusalem. Came back there to rebuild the walls, get things going. It had been sacked and burned by Nebuchadnezzar in 585 B.C. And Nehemiah 
goes to the king of Babylon and says, God wants me to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the walls. And he comes back. Now I want to tell you, any minute Nehemiah could have quit. I want you to notice eight periods or eight types of opposition that Nehemiah met. And on any of these, some of us would have given in, caved in, and we'd just quit. That's where they're going to treat me, I'll quit. If you just heard what others were saying. Well, listen to this. In chapter 4, verse 1, it came to pass when Sanballat heard that we were building the wall, he was angry and felt great indignation and mocked the Jews. He spoke before his brother in the army of Samaria and said, what are these feeble Jews doing? Will they fortify themselves? Will they sacrifice? Will they finish in a day? Will they divide the stones of the heaps of the rubbish, seeing they are burned? Now Tobiah the Ammonite was by him, and he said, Even that which they build, if a fox go up it, he shall break down their stone wall. They were just ridiculing, laughing at him. Ha <laughs> ha, you silly old Jews, you silly old Nehemiah. Whatever you do, it's not going to last. And they ridiculed them. Have you ever been ridiculed? Ever been ridiculed? Somebody ridicule you? Laugh at you? Well, what do you do? A lot of people quit. They just quit. I can't take it. I thought everybody would speak well of me. No, no. Beloved, if you're in the work of the army of the Lord, everybody's going to speak well of you. Beware when everybody speaks well of you. And sometimes a man's foes will be those of his own household, those in his own home, those in his own church. Those in his own country. You imagine all the ridicule that President Reagan has had to take. And Colonel, Colonel North. I don't know what you are, you stand on that, but I'm for Colonel North. I love him. I thank God for him. And look at all the ridicule he's having to take. Anybody of a lesser breed would have quit. I don't have to take this. I'm doing it for my country. Nehemiah said, I'm going on. I'm not going to quit. The ridicule may come, but I'm going on. Look in verse 7. But it came to pass that when Sanballat and Tobiah and the Arabians and the Ammonites and the Ashdodites heard that the repairing of the walls of Jerusalem went forward, the breaches began to be closed, they were very angry and conspired all of them together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to hinder it. They, used, they were threatening to use force. They said, Nehemiah, if you're going to go on with this, we'll stop you, we'll stop you. It was like that big old Goliath giant that came out and said, said, where is somebody that can beat me? He defied the armies of God and little David, little David without any armor, just a slingshot came over and said, who has dared to defy the armies of God? And little David won with moral and spiritual courage and strength when Goliath failed with all of his trappings and all of his art and all of his, all of his armor. Look in verse 10. And Judah said, The strength of the bearers of burdens is decayed, and there's much, so much rubbish that we're not able to build the wall. It got inside. The people inside said, well, we're just discouraged. We can't go on. Not much to do. We, not much of us to do it with. We're going to quit. Nehemiah said, you can't quit. We're going to go on. We're going to go on. Reminds me of, of Columbus crossing the Atlantic. And his, the, John Quinn Miller 
point, paints it in these beautiful words. Behind him lay the gray Azores. Behind the great gates of Hercules. Before him not the ghost of shores. Before him only shoreless seas. The good mate said, now must we pray for this, this mad sea shows its teeth tonight. It curls its lips and lies in wait with lifted lip as if to bite. What shall we say, brave admirals say? What shall we say if we sight naught but seas at dawn? Columbus said, you shall say at break of day, sail on. Sail on. Sail on. What do you do when others want to quit? Look at verse 11. And our adversary said, they shall, know, they shall not know, neither see, till we come among them and slay them and cause the work to cease. It came to pass when the Jews who dwelt by them came, they said unto the ten tribes, uh, they said unto them ten times from, from us, from all places where we, where ye shall return unto us, they will be upon us. Therefore said I, the Lord, placed behind the wall, and so on. They tried to scare them to death. They tried the fear tactic. Look in chapter 5. Now here's where it really got tough. Here were the people that were building the wall, and they were complaining and grumbling. If there was ever a time <coughs> when the threat to, to, to quit would come, it would come under this. Listen to what they were saying. There was a great cry of the people, their wives against their brethren, the Jews. For there were those who said, We, our sons and our daughters, are many. Therefore we take up the grain for them that they may eat and live. Some also were there who said, We have mortgaged our lands and vineyards and houses that we might buy grain because of the famine. There were also those who said, We have borrowed money for the king's tax, and that upon our hands and vineyards. Yet now our flesh is as the flesh of our brethren, our children are as their children, and lo, we bring into bondage our sons and our daughters. In other words, they just said, We, we brother, brother Nehemiah, we've worked and we've worked and we've toiled and we've given and we've done this and we've done that and we've mortgaged our property and we've done all kinds of things and we're not getting any place. We're just going to quit. And here Nehemiah showed his own humanity. He said, I was angry at these things. I got angry with them. And I said, you cannot quit. We will go on. We will go on. And then in chapter 6, came to pass when Sanballat and Tobiah and Geshem and Abram, the, Ab the Arabian and the rest of our enemies heard that I had built the wall and there was no breach left in it, though at that time I had not set up the doors the, upon the gates, that, that Sanballat and Geshem sent to me saying, Come, let us meet together in one of the villages in the place of Ono, that they thought to do me mischief. I, I sent the messenger saying, I am doing a great work so I cannot come down. In other words, they say, let's, uh, let's have a little conference. Uh, let's, uh, let's just get sidetracked a little, by, a little while. Now, I want to tell you, I'm, I'm bringing all these thoughts to our attention tonight as the Holy Spirit has tried to impress them upon my heart to say, what are you going to do when others quit or want to quit? Every year, a thousand preachers in the Southern Baptist Convention quit preaching. Some of them because they don't get enough money. Some of them because of moral failures. Some of them because they never were called to begin with. Some of them because their churches don't cooperate and they give them a tough, 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 tough time. 
and run them off and fire the preacher. What do you do when others quit? What are you going to do when somebody quits teaching a Sunday school class that used to teach and you thought they were really something? What are you going to do when somebody who was a deacon doesn't come regularly to church? What are you going to do when somebody you say, well, that guy was called to preach and look, he's just messed up. Is your commitment to Jesus Christ dependent upon some person or upon your fellowship and relationship to our Lord? I want to tell you, when you quit because somebody else quits, it's because something was wrong to begin with. You were in it just because you got encouraged to get in. And I believe in encouragement. We need to encourage one another. And <coughs> I feel like one of the great sins among Christians is to take each other for granted. We dare not do that. We need to be encouraging. There are a few people in our church that go out of their way week after week after week to come by and say you're a blessing and thank the Lord for you. I think of uh, Cleo. I think of Sanford Davis. I think of some, many of our others, ladies and men both, who go out of their way to shake hands and to say, I appreciate you, what you're doing. Not to just, not to their pastor only. I thank God that they encouraging to me. But I, I see it to others. I see in the encouragement to others. When E.A. Carpenter was a deacon in our church, he used to sit in church and make a list of the deacons that were not there. <laughs> we need some deacons to do that now. And then that week he'd call them up and he'd say, I missed you at church Sunday. Now he wasn't ridiculing them. He wasn't ugly with them. He wasn't being mean. He was just letting them know he cared. How often do we care and encourage others? But I want to ask you, are you in it just because somebody encourages you to be in it? There's going to come a day when the encouragement won't be there. And we need to get ready to stand by ourselves. I mentioned this morning that I'd read somewhere that the drought we're having may be connected to the fact that our Earth's temperature has gone up four degrees in, a, in, in the last century. I think it's the last century. When it is only supposed to go up a certain proportion of a minute dimension of a degree every hundred years four degrees this century. And if that continues, someone postulated that it is possible that America could be a dust bowl by the middle of the 90s. I pray not. But I want to submit to you, I believe we're already under the judgment of God. This drought is a warning to us. Spiritually-minded people will understand it that way. I thank God in training in your night, one of our young men led in prayer for rain. And did you notice it rained tonight? Somebody said, well, it just happened. It's going to rain anyway. I don't believe that. I believe God answered Mike's prayer. I believe God answers prayer. Well, that person is going to get well anyway. I don't believe that. I believe God brings the healing. Now, what are you going to do when others quit? I'm going to bring the message to a close tonight by mentioning these things that I believe 
are the reasons people quit. Number one, folks quit because we do not have a firm foundation. I think there are people that quit because they don't have a firm foundation. I think it's what happened to John Mark. John Mark was a young man, right in the prime, and he got out there, there was more than he could, he, he bit off more than he could chew. <laughs> he got into more than he could take care of. And God said, hey Barnabas, John Mark is a good man. He's going to accomplish something. I'm going to use him to write a gospel. I'm going to use him to be somebody, but he's not ready for it yet. Barnabas, you take him over there and take him under your wing and train him and help him. Some people quit because they don't have a firm foundation. And when we find people that don't have a firm foundation, let's not spit on them. Let's not mash them when they're down. Let's not squeeze.